As Biden gives away more and more in backroom negotiations with right-wing Democrats in Congress, like Joe Manchin, will the social program budget be stripped of its most important measures? We'll also discuss resistance to the coup in Sudan, the latest on right-wing attacks on education, new revelations about human rights abuses among migrants in the custody of the U.S. government, and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's October 26, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Starting in November, video episodes of our Thursday show, The Real Story, will be available with our new partner, Breakthrough News, on youtube.com slash breakthroughnews. We're excited that this Breakthrough News partnership will expand the reach of the show. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. And sign up for our October patrons only seminar with Brian, which will be held tonight, now at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. We'll take questions for Brian beforehand and live as we go as well. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast, On the Ground, at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, the news couldn't be clearer. The dichotomy could not be any greater. The very moment Congress is giving more money to the Pentagon than even they have asked for, and more than last year. The Biden administration is engaging in a massive retreat effort from the already limited social spending bill that was designed to provide assistance and relief for millions of us, millions of working class families who are in crisis. Yeah, Nicole, you are right. The dichotomy, the obvious dichotomy couldn't actually be greater. I mean, in any other country, this would be considered bizarre, absurd, contradictory, would put it mildly. But not here, not in the United States, where, you know, a social spending bill, the Build Back Better bill, as the Biden administration called it, which was pretty limited to start. It started off as a $7 trillion program over 10 years, meaning still smaller than the defense budget every year. Then it was down to $3.5 trillion. And as we talked about in earlier shows, people only knew about the bill by the price tag, the $3.5 trillion, and not the fact that it was a bill that included XYZ important social reforms, or the fact that the $3.5 trillion would come over 10 years. Now the bill is down to $2 trillion over 10 years. And here we have it in the last week, in the last week, the newest defense appropriations bill, which will give the Pentagon $10 billion more than it asked for was announced just as President Joe Biden promised that he would actually reduce or take back the promised programs 
like free community college, Medicare covering hearing, vision, and dental, and other elder care from the so-called reconciliation bill in an attempt to please Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. Senate appropriators supported a 5% increase for an additional $24 billion in military spending on Monday. In total, the defense appropriations bill is $725 billion. And as I said, that's $10 billion more than requested by the Biden administration. I'm looking at an article in Truthout, truthout.org by Susan Zhang. Quote, the 2022 budget for the Defense Department adds an extra $10 billion on top of the already colossal $715 billion that the Pentagon requested. With amendments and other funding, this brings the total of 2022 appropriations for the Pentagon and war-related spending to $778 billion, 5% more than the amount that was appropriated for 2021 fiscal year. And last month, the House of Representatives, controlled by the Democrats, passed an even larger budget for the Pentagon. Again, Nicole, when you put these two facts together, that the government, the Biden administration, pleasing the right-wing Democrats, says, look, we have to listen to them, and they're saying we just can't afford it, we can't afford it. And yet all of them, or almost all of the Democrats and the Republicans, you know, they put their hands on their heart, they salute the flag, and yes, they loot the national treasury for the sake of the military industrial complex. I think we have an audio clip of Biden speaking at CNN. I think it's with the Anderson Cooper, where he sort of announces like what's going on. Let's listen to that real quick. One of the other things that Democrats are looking to do is to expand Medicare to include dental uh, vision uh, and hearing as well. Given all the negotiations that are going on, will all three of those still be covered? That's a reach. And the reason why it's a reach, it's not this. I think it's a good idea. And it's not that costly in relative terms, especially if we allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices. But here's the thing. Mr. Manson is, uh, is, is opposed to that, as is, uh, um, I think, Senator Sinema is as opposed well. Opposed to all of them? Opposed to all three. Mm-hmm. Because they don't want, he says, he doesn't want to further burden Medicare so that because it will run out of its ability to maintain itself in X number of years. There's ways to fix that, but not interested in that part either. But look, Joe, Joe, Joe's not a bad guy. I mean, he's a friend. And he's always, at the end of the day, come around and voted. Uh, no, no, Joe is not a good guy. And it's Biden who's coming around to Joe. And it looks like many in the so-called progressive caucus may also be coming around to Joe because they may, in fact, be voting on the infrastructure bill, which they said they would not do unless the Build Back Better was also adopted simultaneously. Anyway, you know, people might not know this, and I want to get all of your opinions, all of you. People might not know, like, what Medicare covers or doesn't cover. If Unless you're, like, an older person, you might not know all of the things that Medicare covers, and especially the things that Medicare doesn't cover. Now, Medicare doesn't cover outpatient prescription medicines. 
It doesn't cover long-term care. It doesn't cover deductibles and co-pays. That's your Part A deductible. That's if you go into the hospital. Your deductible before Medicare kicks in is actually $1,484. Medicare doesn't cover dental care. Why not? Because as we all know, when you get older, your teeth just get better and better. And the same with eyes, vision. Medicare doesn't cover vision. Again, because as people get older, their eyes get stronger. Their vision gets better and better. So why should Medicare possibly cover that? And of course, it doesn't cover hearing aids because why would older people need hearing aids? Of course, there's a reason for this insanity, which is that private insurance companies using Medicare Advantage, it's now up to 42% of all Medicare recipients are buying private health care insurance plans through so-called Medicare Advantage. That's up from 24% a decade ago. But 42% of people on Medicare are buying Medicare Advantage, which costs a lot of money, but it's essentially private insurance companies providing Medicare for higher prices. And I was looking at the Kiplinger report, and it says, by the way, these programs, Medicare, are very advantaged because here's their language. Many of these plans have extra perks, such as dental, vision, or hearing coverage. Esther, you know, when you think about America, American capitalism, which last week we called a form of organized crime. When we're talking about the vision, the eyes, the ability to see or to hear or dental for older people as a perk, it shows that we're starting at a very, very low spot. Yeah, Brian, I'm glad you mentioned those types of care included in these Medicare Advantage programs, because that was a question I've had as I've seen this plethora of commercials on advertising those kinds of plans. And the, I guess Big Pharma or these insurance companies have also been funding these advertisements, basically like with older people saying, you know, hands off my insurance plan or hands off my medical advantage plan. It's kind of reminding me of the fight over Obamacare, which was really a fight over false information and disinformation and misinformation about what government regulated healthcare could be. So it's the same as like smoke and mirrors campaign by the far right. And, you know, unfortunately it's having this outsized impact on the legislation that is overwhelmingly popular. I mean, I know that these things are on the chopping block, but, you know, Bernie Sanders was over the weekend saying, you know, these things are absolutely not being cut. So I think the progressives are on a collision course again this week, they're going to be asked to either stand tall or even the Democratic leadership is just hoping that they'll fold and let these things come out. Yes, Esther, you're right. This is a pivotal moment for the Progressive Caucus. Nicole, when you think about the absurdity of this, I mean, the last time, as we've pointed out over and over again, the last time the U.S. mainland was invaded was the War of 1812. Okay, so that was 209 years ago even in World War I and World War II, with the exception of the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor way out in Hawaii, the entirety of World War II was fought in other countries, on other people's territory. So obviously, the so-called defense budget isn't for defense. But if you read the defense industry, the so-called defense industry, the military-industrial complex trade papers, 
They're so excited. They are so excited about what's happening and what always happens in the U.S. Congress, where, again, we're told over and over again, "Ah, sorry, old people, we just don't have the money for your eyes or your ears or your teeth. We just don't have that kind of money. But, you know, I shared with you earlier the newsletter of Breaking Defense, one of these trade journals for the military industrial complex. I mean, they're salivating. They are salivating. One headline in this newsletter that you shared, which thank you for sharing, so important and so interesting. One headline, U.S. must build space superhighway before China stakes claims, according to a senior Space Force officer. So, (laughs) yeah, that's what we need. The infrastructure bill is pretty modest. There are 70,000 bridges that are in need of repair in the United (laughs) States. Right. But the most important thing and the thing that Congress is funding is a space superhighway. And of course, it's totally couched in this like anti-China rhetoric, too. In the article, one of the Space Force officers who was quoted says, quote, if you read their products, they is referring to China. If you read their language, if you read their products, which I am a vigorous student of, if you look at what they do, they telegraph everything they're going to do. They believe that the moon is manifest destiny for them, which I mean, After you stop laughing at the ridiculous of this quote, it's like manifest destiny is a U.S. policy. China doesn't have manifest destiny. That's not their goals. That's not what they're doing. Like, this is disgusting. Yeah. I mean, it's Elon Musk and Bezos and all these other people talking about colonizing outer space. And of course, the Pentagon's right with them with the creation of the new Air Command or whatever it's called, the Space Force. Oh, yeah. That was the difference between the Democrats and the Republicans last year was the Democrats wanted to call it a space force and Republicans wanted to call it a space command. So there is a democratic difference. There is variety. There was a big debate. Is it a command or is it a force? So, okay, this lunatic, this general, this space force general, Jay Raymond, listen to this language, Walter, in addition to the language that Nicole cited. He says, we can't turn away. Beijing has ignored a world court ruling on a sovereignty dispute with the Philippines in the South China Sea. And he compared it to how Chinese leaders will act in space without regard to the prohibitions of the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. So there you have it. The Chinese are making claims first on the South China Sea. Yes, it's called the South China Sea for a reason. It might be close to China. And secondly, it's straight from the South China Sea, Walter, to the moon. I mean, it's just the most ridiculous stuff, but it gets repeated by the corporate media with no, you know, critical interrogation, no questions raised. And so just through repetition, it becomes normal. It becomes part of common sense. Like, oh, yeah, of course, we have to beat China to militarize space. You know, another component of this arms race that the United States is initiating and the arms manufacturers are profiting off of is the the race to develop hypersonic missiles. A hypersonic missile is a missile that flies very, very high up, not as high up as an intercontinental ballistic missile, but very high up near space. And it flies many times the speed of sound over to a targeted country and destroys their target or city if it's a nuclear hypersonic missile. And because of the new technology that's being put into it, hypersonic missiles are maneuverable. They can move rather than following a set flight path and are therefore a lot harder 
to shoot down. And so their likelihood of successfully causing massive, in the case of nuclear war, genocidal destruction is much higher. So this is the type of super weapon that they want. I mean, does that actually make you feel more secure? I mean, what would make you feel more secure? These hypersonic missiles that actually make nuclear war more likely? Or free college, being able to send your kids to community college for free, or public housing repaired, or for the millions of undocumented people living in fear of ICE raids to have legalized status. I mean, of course, these things would be huge for working class people's security, but they have to instead be sacrificed so that the military under this ridiculous guise of false security can get their hypersonic missiles, they can get their space force up and running and so on. Brian, I've got another headline for you from breakingdefense.com. Getting rid of excess, new army sites prepare units to receive modernized equipment. So, sorry, (laughs) we're funding nearly a trillion dollars for one year, the defense industry, who's getting rid of, quote unquote, excess, I don't know, using what's already there, using the billions that are put into this all the time? Yeah, let me read to you from this one. This is this is really something because it's so glibly presented. Again, for everyone, the reason we're talking about this is the U.S. military is going to get 760 or 770 billion dollars for this year. Again, like they get every year. And they're producing equipment and military hardware, most of which will never be used. And if it were to be used, it would only mean, you know, vast death and destruction. So it really is 100% waste spending. In other words, you know, you can't do anything with a hypersonic missile. It's not like a technology transfer that's got some civilian use. But here we go. A little known entity inside the army has a grandiose task. Prepare units across the service for the massive amounts of next generation capabilities the army plans to deliver to soldiers in the next decade. To make the influx of new technologies possible, the service will rely on a new modernization displacement and repair sites. I love the language, modernization, displacement, and repair sites, meaning getting rid of excess equipment that has already been paid for by taxpayers, already paid for by the old people who won't be able to buy hearing aids. And this entity, the MDRS, will churn out decades-old equipment from units to clear space for so-called new capabilities, meaning the newer equipment. I mean, when you look through this article, there are... 85,000 pieces of equipments that have been received from soldiers that are no longer usable. And then next year, it'll be 130,000. So this modernization, displacement, and repair site, which means that they're spending you know tens of millions of dollars to create this new bureaucracy within the Pentagon to take possession of equipment that's no longer usable, or it could be usable, but they want to buy new stuff, again, that we pay for. One of the officials quoted in this article says, quote, after 20 years of war, we have a tremendous amount of excess. The constant turn and churn of units and equipment back and forth into the Middle East has allowed us to bring back and hold a lot of equipment we need to get rid of. So why on earth is there so much money going into the Pentagon? The bill includes as well $3.3 billion for the Pentagon that had been intended to support Afghan security forces. Why did those 3.3 get reorganized into other areas? 
why on earth is there so much money going into the equipment area, into building these new and fancy weapons? We need to be rebuilding housing. We need to be rebuilding the places that people live. We need to be rebuilding building in the first place, public transit and, you know, rebuilding the stuff that's falling apart, like in Washington, D.C., where there's been a week of delays, huge, huge delays because there's so many issues going on with the local train. It's disgusting. Half the subway cars in D.C. are out of service right now. Fifty percent. Well, when I look at this article about Israel is planning to ask the U.S. to sell its new 5,000 pound GBU-72 bomb to the Israeli Defense Forces, I mean, that raises lots of flags for me. Like, you know, Human Rights Watch and many other organizations for years have been calling Israel an apartheid state. We know that they just outlawed three or four major human rights organizations, Palestinian organizations that are doing a tremendous job under the weight of, you know, Israeli repression of the Palestinian people. They're doing this tremendous job and they've just been declared illegal. And we want to sell this murderous apartheid state, this mother of all bombs. You know, it should be criminal. We should not be allowed to sell Israel this type of weapon or any of these weapons that they're using against oppressed, occupied people. I couldn't agree with you more, Esther. And, you know, to go back to Brian's original comment about how, you know, clearly the defense forces are extremely excited, just salivating at the idea of all this money. The first few paragraphs of that article in particular are just outrageous. I will read them. In the coming months, Israel plans to ask the U.S. to sell its new 5,000-pound GBU-72 bomb to the Israeli Defense Forces, sources here say, with the goal of utilizing it against Hamas's subterranean bases. Already, Israeli planners have shared operational lessons from their use of the GBU-28 bomb, the predecessor to the new one, with the U.S. Air Force in order to help develop operational profiles for the GBU-72. In turn, Israeli military officials hope Washington will okay the eventual sale of the GBU-72 once it enters full use for the U.S. Air Force. During this year's Guardian of the Walls military operation in Gaza, Israel made significant use of the GBU-28, an older 5,000-pound quote-unquote bunker-buster weapon, in order to target Hamas's so-called Metro City Tunnel Network. I mean, just take apart any bit of those words and it's just oppression and death and colonization just all wrapped into like one package that the U.S. is just so excited to partner with Israel about. And you know what? Another target of that arms sale, I believe, I bet, has got to be Iran. You know, Israel has been saying since the United States and Iran agreed to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran nuclear deal in 2015, that they reserve the right. They reserve the right to take unilateral action to destroy Iran's nuclear program, which, you know, of course, Iran says is not for military purposes. But that's been Israel's position. We reserve the right to initiate a war against another sovereign state that the United States actually just made a major landmark agreement with. And they constantly threaten Iran with war, constantly threaten Iran with war as a way to put pressure not only on the Iranian government and people, but also on on the United States, because they don't like the diplomatic course that the U.S. had taken, which Trump, of course, 
ripped up. But still, you know, in the event that Israel carried out this type of attack that they've been threatening to do constantly against nuclear research facilities in Iran, these are the types of munitions that they would need, right? Because these are, of course, heavily fortified positions. They're built into mountains. They would need these type of bunker buster bombs. And the United States is giving it to them. Yeah. By the way, here's Stars and Stripes, which isn't an industry paper. It's a Department of Defense paper, or it may be a private publication. I'm not quite sure, but it's associated with the U.S. military. The Air Force is testing, this was from two weeks ago, the Air Force is testing a mammoth 5,000-pound bomb designed using advanced modeling to increase its impact in reaching and destroying hardened underground facilities the likes of North Korea's ballistic missile and nuclear weapons facilities. Oh, this will make North Korea want to really disarm right away. An F-15E strike fighter completed a series of three tests Thursday with the GBU-72 advanced 5,000-pound penetrator bomb from 35,000 feet at Elgin Air Base in Florida. I'm sure the people in Florida were very happy about this test. Anyway, how much does each bomb cost? The U.S. has just ordered 135 of them. Anybody want to make a guess? $36 million for each bomb. $36 million for each bomb. And again, all of the Congress, and especially all of the people arguing that you know it's just too expensive to have any effective climate change legislation with the Build Back Better it's too expensive to give working class kids the right to go to college, community college for free. It's just too expensive to have, you know, Medicare cover hearing and dental and vision. It's just too expensive. But there's no question that what the United States needs is 136 more bunker buster bombs that are 5,000 pounds each. And if any of them are used, it would be a signal that more death and destruction is coming. Again, militarism is you know part and parcel of U.S. capitalism. U.S. capitalism cannot survive without militarism. Nicole, you asked the rhetorical question, why would we need this? Well, we don't need it, actually. We, the people, don't need it. The country, for its defense, doesn't need it. Obviously, these are not needed for defense. And probably many or almost all of the weapons will never be used. But this is the system by which the government spends money to keep a certain economic system, capitalism, going. So it has to subsidize not the poor, not those who are being evicted, not those who can't hear when they're 67 years old. It has to subsidize the capitalist corporations. But if you said to the American people, look, we're going to give almost a trillion dollars a year every year to the biggest capitalists in the country because otherwise they're going to fail. Otherwise, they can't really have a sustainable economic project. The people of the United States would say, no way, we're not going to allow that to happen. But if you put it in the context of, look, this is for national defense. This is to keep us safe. This is to make our military strong. So our enemies who are coming at us like China or Russia or Iran or North Korea or Cuba or Venezuela, they won't succeed. This is just a big con job by American capitalism and the U.S. capitalist class to justify something that people don't actually quite yet realize, which is that this system is unsustainable 
except for government intervention, and the government intervention is for the capitalists, and yet they can't do it except by dressing it up as something for national security, meaning something for all of us. Brian, before we move off this topic, I want to put some of these huge figures into perspective because I think it's so hard to understand some of these numbers. So the bill that we're talking about, the Pentagon Appropriations Bill, $29 billion higher than last year. So that includes the $10 billion that they didn't even ask for that Congress decided to go ahead and give them anyway. $29 billion over 10 years, which I think Esther pointed out a few weeks ago, the $3.5 trillion social infrastructure, healthcare, you know, incredible bill that we're talking about, that price tag is being floated around, but it's actually over 10 years, whereas they never talk about, you know, military spending over 10 years, it's only over one. So the 29 billion that Congress decided to give extra to the Pentagon, that's the increase from last year, over 10 years, that's 290 billion. That would pay for more than four fifths, and this is just an estimate of the Medicare expansion to dental, vision, and hearing. And you heard Biden in that clip too, presumably some of these prices would come down as well if Medicare was able to negotiate its own rates. So we can assume, I think, that just that $29 billion, if Congress had decided we're just going to keep the level the same as last year, instead of doing that, instead of adding the $29 billion, we could just go ahead and pay for the Medicare expansion that Manchin has decided we shouldn't be paying for, that old people shouldn't have access to dental care. They shouldn't have access to glasses and, you know, cataract surgeries and having healthy vision. They shouldn't have access to hearing aids. So I think that's one a really important comparison. And then if you're just talking about the $10 billion that, again, Congress decided to give in addition, even more than the Pentagon was asking for, which has never happened to the rest of us ever, you know, lobbying Congress for anything. When do you ever see housing advocates get more money for affordable housing, when do you ever see, you know, people in trying to prevent the climate from being destroyed ever getting more money than they request? For ten billion over ten years would be a hundred billion dollars, which is more than two thirds the cost of the climate energy performance program that Manchin has come out saying he wants to cut. This would be a huge program that would create a clean energy standard for corporations and industry and would use grant incentives for customer programs as the carrot, you know, to make industry adhere to this clean energy standard and would use financial penalties as the stick. I mean, we could pay for the majority of this if Congress had just decided, you know, to allocate that money differently. That 100 billion, you know, instead could pay for two years of free community college for 10 years. We wouldn't have to cut that if Congress had decided not to give that extra $10 billion. I mean, it's just really mind boggling when you think about it. Lastly, I'll just say we're talking about this budget appropriation for the Pentagon, you know, in this $700 billion level or more than that. But, you know, there's also a lot of other appropriations that go toward the military, like some of the appropriations for the Department of Energy that include a lot of the nuclear weapons and people who staff the nuclear weapons and, you know, all of the sort of things that go into that. And it's really some estimates have it closer to about a trillion dollars a year that the Pentagon gets. Now, this spending bill has now gotten cut, the spending bill for climate change, for health care, for you know, paid medical leave. That's cut and cut down to $2 trillion now over 10 years. Doing the math on that, the regular full spending budget of the American military will be approximately five times more annually than this bill. If this spending bill gets passed and it gets cut to $2 trillion, five times more will go to the military than even just this small increase in some of the basic things that people need, like 
paid leave and community college and, you know, actually having access to childcare. Before we move on to another topic, I want to play this other audio clip that we have. It's very short. It's from Chris Wallace on Fox News. He's interviewing Congressperson Ro Khanna, but I'm more interested in what Chris Wallace actually says because he's talking about the wealth tax and what it might mean for this part of the population, the 700 plus billionaires who together have something like 50% of the wealth of the country. Anyway, let's listen. Wealthy Americans, those making more than $400,000 and on corporations, there is suddenly talk of a wealth tax on about 700, 700 billionaires. Are you willing to vote for that without any real testing or vetting? Oh my God, how, you know, Without testing and vetting, how would you know, Walter, that a tax on billionaires' wealth might be good or bad? It's completely ridiculous. And, you know, one way to understand how ridiculous it is is to think about wealth inequality and how much money these billionaires have gotten. Here's another way. Over the course of the pandemic, this is a from a new analysis by Forbes magazine, who would know, you know, they're like the billionaires magazine. Since the pandemic began, The billionaires in the United States, you know, the few hundred billionaires that exist in the United States, increased their total wealth by $2 trillion. They got $2 trillion wealthier when working class people were suffering through some of the worst times in living memory, some of the worst hardships, hunger, unemployment, poverty, homelessness. These billionaires got $2 trillion wealthier. And the prospect that even some of that wealth could be taken away from them, could be redistributed to people who so badly need it, is cause for great concern and consternation and, oh, are you sure about this? And the corporate media shows just how completely bought and paid for these mainstream commentators are. You know, they would never, ever ask similar questions about the efficacy of different military programs, the efficacy of different, you know, military aid programs to repressive regimes around the world like Israel and Saudi Arabia. But they do ask these questions when it affects the people who own the corporations that sign their paychecks. Indeed. Well, it's in the same breath that Senator Manchin and others have asked or demanded, really, that some of the incredible programs like, I don't know, free community college, like getting you know a couple of years of college under your belt, that these types of programs have means testing. And if you don't have the paperwork or you don't have the time or you don't have the resources, you just miss out on the program. And, you know, another thing on that point real quick about means testing, which means that essentially recipients or, you know, people who want to be recipients of different social programs have to submit onerous amounts of paperwork, go through a bureaucratic process, prove that their income is low enough or their life circumstances are desperate enough and submit all this documentation to the government before they can begin enjoying the benefits of a social program. You know, here's one example of how catastrophic means testing that practice can be. The Treasury Department just announced yesterday new data about how the rental assistance program has been going. This is the 40 plus billion dollars that have been allocated by Congress to provide relief for tenants who fell far, far behind on their rent during the pandemic and are facing eviction. Only 23% of that money has been distributed to tenants. 
I mean, this is an enormous crisis, 11 million people potentially facing eviction. And because of this onerous bureaucratic process that they put on there in order to essentially punish poor people for being poor, that means that the vast majority of this aid has not reached the people who need it, even though it's been around for like nine months. The Treasury Department has announced that only $10.7 billion of the $46.5 billion of authorized funds have actually been distributed. And Walter, a lot of the argument in favor of people being able to bypass these types of onerous amounts of paperwork is the fact that the government already has documentation about, like, for example, your income, right? You filed your taxes, listening to this testimony on behalf of victims of Hurricane Harvey and people not really getting the type of relief that they need. And the local government has a copy of your deed. They know you own this property or that, you know, you pay taxes on this property. So people didn't get that type of assistance. So all these systems, as you say, of means testing only results in people not getting the aid that is allocated for them. Yeah, the means tests are really just designed to make sure working class and poor people can't access things that presumably they have the right to. And it's a time-tested tactic. I mean, if you think back through American history and how after the passage of the 15th Amendment that gave Black men the right to vote, how that was used to disenfranchise Black voters, the states that wanted to make sure Black people didn't vote used every kind of test Every kind of different test, literacy test, grandfather clause test, disenfranchisement clauses, state poll taxes, everything to make sure that people who presumably, according to the Constitution, had the right to vote actually couldn't. So that by 1910, for instance, in the state of Alabama and Mississippi, the number of black people who were even registered to vote was down to 2%, 2% by 1910. All kinds of extra paperwork, extra tests, all of it designed from the beginning to make sure people couldn't access that which the government says they have the right to do, whether it's social or economic or in the case of voting rights. Anyway, I want to go on, Walter, and if you would start us off here, we've covered this territory somewhat, but I want to just go over what's going to actually happen in Congress. And I think it was said earlier, you know, for the Progressive Caucus, this is a sort of a moment of reckoning. They're on a collision course because they keep praising Biden openly and consistently, and yet Biden keeps retreating, retreating, retreating in the face of Manchin and Cinema's demands. Anyway, what's going to happen in the next coming days or weeks? Yeah, that's right, Brian. So this could be really a decisive week coming up. Essentially, the Congressional Progressive Caucus has a posture. They've sort of positioned themselves as sort of, you know, the true advocates, the real fighters for Joe Biden's economic agenda, social agenda. And so that, you know, provided them with some leverage in their struggle to get the quote unquote, bipartisan infrastructure package, you know, pushed back to defeat the effort by the right wingers to pass that to the exclusion of the social program budget. But now they're stuck in this position where it's actually Joe Biden who's making all these concessions to right wing Democrats like Cinema and Manchin and a handful of people in the House. So they're in a tough position. What could really turn this around, in my view, I think this is the only thing at this point that could turn it around, is mass struggle, right? I mean, 
thousands of people in the streets protesting at these senators' offices, having civil disobedience actions at these senators' offices, you know, pressuring the Democratic Party leadership to essentially declare their careers over, you know, I mean, they could be doing that, right? The Democratic Party leadership could be saying, we will take you off of all of your committee assignments. We will never consider another piece of legislation, no matter how mild or uncontroversial it is that you propose. They could say, we're never going to give you any more campaign money from any of our national fundraising vehicles. But really, it'll take mass struggle at this late stage in the game to turn it around so dramatically. Otherwise, what we might see happen is that Essentially, at the end of this week, which is the self-imposed deadline by the Congressional Democratic Party's leadership to you know, reach some sort of concrete agreement on what the social program budget will look like, you know, as that deadline approaches, they'll begin to actually write this into legislative text that will be formally voted on and passed using the reconciliation process. And then it could be signed into law, you know, in a couple of weeks. The continuing resolution that Congress passed to prevent a government shutdown from happening expires at the beginning of December. So, you know, they'll likely want to allow themselves some leeway, some time to focus just on that. You know, you've got the holidays coming up. Yeah, I mean, it looks like the next week or two or three is when this is really going to be resolved in a decisive way. I'm looking at David Sirota's newsletter, the Daily Poster. It's yesterday on Monday. He's talking about where things stand in Congress. I'm going to read a couple of sentences to you, and then any one of you who wants to jump in and comment, that would be great. Here it is. In August, Congressional Progressive Caucus, CPC, leaders said they would not vote for the bipartisan infrastructure deal, quote, until the Senate adopted a robust reconciliation package, close quote. As he noted at the time, progressives did not define what they considered robust to mean. Quote, this is a problem because while words like lower and comprehensive and expanded and robust sound nice, they are also fungible. And fungibility is how seemingly good legislation can get watered down to nothing. Sirota then goes on to say that he warned that progressives' failure to make specific demands has, quote, created the political space, meaning not specific, but just words like robust, has created the political space for corporate Democrats to try to whittle down the bill to barely anything at all. If that effort is successful, it would force progressives to choose between voting for an empty husk of a bill that is at least called reconciliation or risk getting nothing at all. Corporate Democrats would be betting that under enough pressure, progressives will eventually choose the husk and calculate that they'd be able to sell it to the voters back home as a spectacular victory. I think that's about right. I mean, just remember, this is the same Congress controlled by the Democrats, the Senate and the House, that axed the demand of the Progressive Caucus for a $15 national minimum wage. Now, They could have passed it. The Democrats control the House and the Senate and Biden would have signed it. But they not only didn't pass it, again, under the pressure of Manchin and Sinema, they didn't raise the minimum wage by one penny. Not one penny. It's the same that it was in 2009, 40% lower than what it was in 1968. As we've said over and over again, 40% lower. The minimum wage is 40% lower than it was 
when Dr. King said the country is in a state of crisis because of poverty and organized the Poor People's March in Washington in 1968. Again, the minimum wage was 40% higher than it is today in real dollars. But it seems to me that the progressives minus a mass struggle, and no one has successfully organized a mass movement right now, absent that, in all likelihood, they won't want to be blamed for Biden coming up with nothing. So they'll accept something, this very whittled down program, and say, as he said, that it was a spectacular victory. Anyway, let's get reactions from one or a couple of you, and then we'll go on to the next topic. Well, the other thing that's happening this week in terms of this bill being whittled down is that the progressives are constantly making concessions to Joe Manchin around climate. And this is the same week when, in a basically, they're calling historic moment, fossil fuel executives are being called into Congress to testify about why basically they've been lying about what they know about the climate crisis for decades, why their corporations have continued to put out misinformation about the impact of burning oil and gas and coal and these fossil fuels into the environment, and why they continue to really work against all efforts to combat the climate catastrophe. But an article that I was looking at by Mitch Jones, who is the policy director at Food and Water Action, he's saying that basically the Democrats are offering Manchin a basket of polluter-friendly subsidies to prop up essentially non-existent carbon capture power technology, a watered-down clean power plan, barely better than the status quo, or a meaningless carbon tax that mostly exists as a totem for an industry that pretends to care about the planetary damage it caused. You know, and that's his language. And I'm thinking back on the people versus fossil fuel demonstrations that just happened a couple of weeks ago. And this is precisely what they were talking about when they had signs up that said, Biden, no bullshit, real solutions, because they know that these same technologies carbon capture, (laughs) carbon tax, these things aren't working and the industry is just laughing at them. But this is what they're offering to Manchin and he's still not budging. He's still basically trying to get them to scrap what meaningful parts of the legislation that will deal with climate. And he also says something that's really interesting in here. I'm looking at an analysis of one of these kinds of programs. He says that about the tax credit program in general, and this is for industries that are implementing renewable energy as opposed to polluting energies. So this tax program known as 45Q was recently exposed as basically a giant scam. In 2020, the Treasury Department's Inspector General released a damning report that detailed the way that the fossil fuel industry had exploited the program. Of the $1 billion in credits that had been handed out, almost $900 million did not even meet the EPA monitoring and verification guidelines. Most of the carbon that was supposedly being sequestered was not properly accounted for, and that report came after intense criticism from those who warned that the carbon capture credits were just a fossil fuel subsidy in disguise. And you were talking about means testing and the ways that these industries and corporations and the rich are being subsidized. Greenpeace put out a piece that estimates that the fossil fuel industry directly gets subsidies of 
$20 billion a year, $20 billion a year, and that they also are able to receive about $649 billion per year in other programs that aren't directly supposed to be for them, but they still take advantage of them. So, you know, times that times 10, you know, in terms of the kinds of money that we're talking about, $670 billion a year is a lot of money. And if we extrapolate that over 10 years, that's getting to be a lot. And anyway, so these are the types of things that aren't being means tested. These are the things that aren't being debated in terms of fossil fuel companies continuing to get our tax dollars to pollute the earth, but they want people means tested over childcare and getting a tax credit for their child. All right, Walter. Time is going quickly here, but there's a big development, of course, in Africa, in Sudan in particular. Just bring us up to date. Yeah, that's right. So there is massive resistance going on in the streets all throughout Sudan to resist a coup, a coup that's been carried out by the military to essentially reverse all of the gains made by the Sudanese people in what's referred to as the December Revolution, beginning in December 2018 and culminating with the overthrow of the longtime president of Sudan, Omar al-Bashir, the following year. So the result of that was a transitional government that's in part made up of military officers and in part made up of civilian political representatives. The military component of that transitional government has essentially just arrested the civilian side of the transitional government, including interim Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok. So the people are out in the streets in humongous numbers. The Forces for Freedom and Change is one of the sort of umbrella alliances that are organizing these. There's trade unions, there's resistance committees based in different neighborhoods, different political parties. The Sudanese Communist Party is very strong, is recognized by a lot of the people who have been most involved in the protest movement in the revolution as a political force that has a lot of credibility. They're calling on people to rise up, engage in a general strike and massive civil disobedience campaign. And already vicious repression is being unleashed on the people. Because the internet has been largely blacked out across the country, it's hard to get accurate, up-to-date information about how many people have been wounded, how many people have been killed. But there have certainly been already many deaths at the hands of police and soldiers. But that has not deterred the people from taking to the streets, resisting, and trying to turn back this coup against the revolution. We'll keep following this. Of course, the Sudanese Communist Party in particular was at one time the largest communist party in Africa. It suffered many setbacks and severe repression. But anyway, we'll keep following what's going on in Sudan in the coming days and weeks. Let's go on to some of the big stories that we're paying attention to, and we want to just flag them, even if briefly, some of them a little less briefly, but we want to flag them so the people who are listening to this show can also be aware of them and follow them during the course of the week, and some of them we'll revisit next Tuesday. But Esther Julian Assange, back in court. That's right. On Wednesday and Thursday of this week, October 27th and the 28th, he will be back in court. This is his extradition hearing. As we know, the U.S. is trying to extradite Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks, to the United States to face espionage charges, even though he is not a resident or citizen of the United States 
for revealing war crimes, basically, of the United States. And this case is viewed by journalists and I mean, true journalists, people who really understand what the First Amendment is supposed to be about. They see this as a vital test for journalism and freedom of speech and the ability of investigative journalists to do their jobs. Because if a journalist can be in prison, tortured, basically extradited to the United States, and he's not even a U.S. citizen, this is a serious case for journalism all over the world. Yeah. And again, as of last January, the president of Mexico offered asylum to Julian Assange and insisted he should be pardoned. A really terrible, terrible injustice. We've all been involved in it in trying to win the freedom for Julian. It's really so important. It's important for him. It's important for WikiLeaks. It's important for even the premise of an independent media. Esther, what are some of the other stories? We're also keeping an eye on a report released by Human Rights Watch, and they have documented a series of serious abuses against migrants at the U.S. border. The report includes physical and sexual abuse of people, especially young people, of women. And this is coming on the heels of what went viral, of images of Haitians being whipped at, whether with reins or whatever, by these Border Patrol on horseback. And so this is an issue that's going to stay on the news, and we want to keep watching on what's happening with this report and what's happening at the border. School boards are a place of intense struggle right now, mostly emanating from ultra-right and fascist forces, again, reminiscent of when the Tea Party formed back in 2009 and 10 in protest against Obama promising to have universal health care, which of course did not happen. But you know they brought guns to the town hall meetings of Congress people and of course, you know, crusaded against Obamacare as if it was the beginning of the worst stage of communism in America. Anyway, it's a fierce struggle going on at the local level now at boards of education. That's right. And the way I see it, you know, the far right is effectively, you know, weaponizing its political assault on public safety measures against COVID, vaccines, masks, and teaching about racism in American history with these often violent mobs attacking school boards to create what is a new big lie. And that is that the Biden administration, DOJ, and the FBI is attacking parents. So the object of this recent rage among the far right stems from a memorandum that Attorney General Merrick Garland wrote earlier this month, directing the FBI and Assistant Attorneys General to partner with state and local officials to address these threats against school administrators, board members, teachers, and staff. And we've reported on some of these threats on this show. The first one that went viral back in August was of this mob in Williamson County, Tennessee, threatening school and medical professionals after they testified about the importance of wearing masks. And then the school board voted in favor of making masks mandatory. And so we saw all this video of people following whether it was a doctor or a nurse, you know, to their car and screaming at him into his car window, we'll find you. We know who you are. We know where you live. And down in Brevard County, Florida, a school board member, Jennifer Jenkins, has had these threats go from the board meeting setting to vandalism at her private home, people with guns protesting at all hours outside her home with megaphones, people armed with weapons near her church, a state representative in Florida, an anti-mask crusader, posted her cell phone number on his Facebook page 
And so her personal phone was just basically unusable with people texting her and calling her. And then the lowest blow was that there was this anonymous tip that she was abusing her child. So in the middle of a play date, she had someone from the state Department of Children and Families show up and she had to go with her child so her child could be examined to make sure she didn't have burns on her body. So this is just really off the wall stuff that's happening, not only in these two instances, but all around the country. And so I was looking at an article by Sarah Lamb in The Progressive, and she's talking about all these frightening incidents around the country in Florida, Texas, Michigan, and Wisconsin, and where some groups are showing up, giving the Nazi salute, you know, at board meetings. The Proud Boys are showing up at board meetings. In Minnesota, assault charges were brought against a man, Thomas Cowball. He was 47 years old and he attacked someone at the meeting. So with all this happening, this is why Merrick Garland wrote the memo to basically protect people. And these are real verified acts of violence and death threats to officials around the country. But instead of recognizing this to be the truth, what's happening is that the far right is weaponizing this to say that the Biden administration, the DOJ, the FBI is targeting parents. So they're using the rhetoric of kind of like protecting the family, protecting the all American red, white, and blue American family against this aggression by the government. And by doing that, they are ignoring this actual violence that is happening. They are using it in political campaigns like we see right near us in Washington, D.C. and nearby Virginia, the gubernatorial candidate is using the rhetoric that the Democratic candidate opposes parents <laughs> and that the FBI is now opposing parents. So this is very dangerous. And it's just the latest step in how you see the far right weaponizing disinformation, pitting people against each other in local communities, weaponizing violence, weaponizing death threats. And then you have elected officials, even here in Washington, D.C., ignoring all that and using the rhetoric of the far right to go further. So the last thing I'll say is that as an example, when Merrick Garland testified before Congress last week, all the time was basically taken up with the Republicans asking him why the DOJ was going after parents and why the DOJ was considering parents to be domestic terrorists when they want to ignore what is really illegal behavior, which are terrorist acts happening around the country. Right. And of course, critical race theory, the people who are you know insisting that it not be taught, they actually don't know what it is. The slogan, Stop Critical Race Theory, is just a stand-in slogan for don't talk about the truth about U.S. history, which is, right. of course, a history of you know, longstanding racism. The country was premised on racism. It was premised on systems of racism that were used to justify the economic system where a huge part of the working class was enslaved. And those enslaved people were Africans. And so a racist hierarchy was constructed. This is not like a newsflash. But critical race theory is just a stand-in right now for telling the truth about U.S. history. And let's not forget that the right-wing mobilizations going on at school boards around the country, becoming more and more militant, are happening around this issue because in September 2020, then-President Donald Trump issued an executive order excluding from federal contracts 
any diversity and inclusion training interpreted as containing what was called in the federal executive order, divisive concepts related to race or sex stereotyping or race or sex scapegoating. Again, just stand in words, euphemistic words, like if you talk about racism, if you talk about the truth about U.S. history, we're going to cut off your funds. A total green light to the far right and white racist movement. One other thing that has been repealed. But as you mentioned last week, when you gave the analogy of Ruby Bridges and how she was attacked by basically a lot of parents were in those mobs, you know, so they want to use this language of parents. But being a parent doesn't give you a license to make death threats or to be violent. Right. And those same people who were howling at Ruby Bridges or any of the other young black children trying to desegregate schools, they weren't right because they were parents. And there's a scene of this school board member, Jennifer Jenkins. She has to be escorted into the school board meetings. And it just reminded me so much of Ruby Bridges having to be escorted into school by U.S. Marshals. Indeed. I'm so glad you made that point. I was in Boston organizing against racist mobs in 1974. We had a march against racism December 14th, 1974. 25,000 people, black and white and Latino and other nationalities came together to say no to racism on December 14th. And I have to say, we were confronted or had been confronting mobs of thousands of white racists in East Boston and South Boston who were mobilizing against the integration, the busing program that would bring black kids into formerly all white schools in South and East Boston. And yeah, there were a lot of parents and guess what? They were carrying guns and it was an armed struggle and a mass political struggle in Boston, not in Mississippi, not in the deep South, but in Boston, Massachusetts. And that again was 1974. So you're totally right, Esther. The fact that somebody's a parent doesn't mean anything else. I mean, many KKK members might've been parents. So what? Anyway, let's keep going. We have, of course, the big stories from Liberation News. Walter, you are the editor. Yeah, please go to liberationnews.org. Click the link to sign up for the newsletter at the top that comes out every week highlighting our national, international, and local stories. One article that I want to recommend is titled Crimes Against Humanity, Brazilian Congress Issues Damning Report on Bolsonaro's COVID Response. Uh, There was an official investigation carried out by the representatives in Brazil's Congress, and they found that Bolsonaro was responsible for a number of very serious crimes, the most serious of which is crimes against humanity, for his complete refusal to tackle the COVID crisis, which has led to over 600,000 deaths in Brazil, the most of any country in the world other than the United States. You can get all the details in this article. Another one that I want to highlight, also an international article, is titled South Korean General Strike Challenges Inequality. Later this week, we're going to have a whole episode dedicated just to this, but you can get some of the details now about what happened in South Korea when millions of workers went on strike, braved fierce police repression to demonstrate against the intensifying injustices of capitalism in South Korea. That title, again, is South Korean General Strike Challenges Inequality. And finally, I want to highlight an article titled 
Socialist Bard from NYC Major Debate asks, what are they afraid of? This is about the Kathy Rojas campaign in New York City. Kathy Rojas is the socialist candidate running for mayor against primarily Eric Adams, the Democratic Party police captain candidate who constantly attacks socialism and the left-wing and progressive movement. She was barred from participating in the major mayoral televised debate because they don't have millionaire and billionaire donors and they weren't able to raise the amount of money that the organizers of that debate require. But they held a spirited action outside that's getting a lot of attention. You can read more about that. Socialist Bard from NYC Major Debate asks, what are they afraid of? You can find all of that and more at liberationnews.org. Yeah. And I would also encourage people to look at the breakthrough news video of Kathy Rojas. It was brilliant what she and her supporters did outside the debates, where they had the debate questions announced outdoors where she was excluded, and she answered each question as if she was in the debate. And it was really brilliant. Her answers, if they were allowed to be in the debate and on TV, would undoubtedly have gotten her the support of hundreds of thousands of people in the New York City area. Anyway, really important. So go to liberationnews.org or to Breakthrough News to see that video. I do want to mention, Nicole, before we leave, that today is October 26th. 19 years ago, the Answer Coalition called a demonstration right next to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial to protest against what appeared to be a new war. And the argument we made was that here you have the Vietnam Veterans Memorial with the names of 56,000 U.S. soldiers and sailors and Marines, people who died, along with the millions of Vietnamese who died during the Vietnam War, and that if we didn't stop the next war before it started, there'd be an Iraq War memorial. And so we called the demonstration, and 200,000 people came, 200,000. And that showed that the new anti-war movement was bursting. It was coming into existence. And within a couple months, that became a global movement with millions, really more than 10 million by the middle of February 2003, trying to stop the war before it started. We didn't succeed in stopping the war before it started, but it was something very, very unprecedented, an anti-war movement before a war started, not at the very middle or tail end of it. So anyway, I just want to recognize this as an important part of history. It won't be noticed by the mainstream media but it gave birth to a mass movement that the New York Times by February 2003 called the second global superpower because the mass movement at that time seemed so profound. In the spirit of activism, I just want to remind people about the Poor People's Campaign rallying this Wednesday, October 27th at 1030 at 1 First Street Northeast. I guess that's right near the Supreme Court. And it's called Moral Witness Wednesday, Economic Investment for the People, Not Corporations and the Greedy. And it's really about all the things we've been talking about this entire show, for the people to stand up at this moment, this week, when we need to fight for legislation and our tax dollars being used for human needs and not what they call not the corporations and the greedy. So that's Wednesday, October 27th, 10.30 a.m., 1 First Street Northeast. I think that's right near the Supreme Court. 
Yeah, and you know, Esther, here's one other example of people speaking out against these right-wing senators who want to gut all of these absolutely crucial programs. Just want to read from Politico here for a second. It's under the heading, Manchin gets his Pence-Hamilton moment. At a recording of West Virginia Public Radio's Mountain Stage program at the Kennedy Center on Sunday night, singer Carsey Blatton called out Joe Manchin, who was in attendance in a song she'd written called Dealing to the Devil. It's a story about her ex-boyfriend and Donald Trump, but she shifted the dedication to Manchin over his resistance to fully extending the child tax credit, drawing cheers from the crowd, awkward. Clearly, clearly people support these programs and it's this kind of pressure, mass pressure, is really the only chance we have to turn it around at this stage. Nicole, that's all the time we have. Of course, we will be back tomorrow with Richard Wolf. On Thursday, we have a really important interview with people who are fighting in support of and in solidarity with the Korean labor movement, the KCTU in South Korea. We're going to talk about South Korea and the reemergence of a strong labor movement in advance of the upcoming Korean elections. Again, we have a lot going on this week. We also have our seminar for patrons that will take place later tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Starting in November, video episodes of our Thursday show, The Real Story, will be available with our new partner, Breakthrough News, on youtube.com slash Breakthrough News. We're excited that this breakthrough partnership will expand the reach of the show. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Brian Becker.